Well, what we see in this passage are some amazing things about Jesus and about his power and about his compassion. And as I think we will uh, recall, we're studying through the Gospel of Mark to keep our eyes on Jesus at a time when there's an awful lot of distraction and uh, fears, indeed, uh, going on and things causing us a great deal of fear, whether it's the fear of whether you have enough petrol uh, to get where you want to go or uh, something perhaps slightly more profound uh, is impossible. Um, but fear and faith are our themes here today. Fear and faith and fear and courage and faith are essential components of the Christian life, but also all of life in some ways. So that's what we're going to be talking about here today. Now, as we're going through the Gospel of Mark, we are not covering every single verse, and indeed we're leaving out that amazing story today of the demon-possessed man from the beginning of uh, chapter 5. And so you might want to read that another time to put it in context, because all of the incidents are important here. And I've written a bit about that on today's Watford Word, which is on the seats, but also uh, in a Google Drive, and I've sent out the link via WhatsApp. Uh, so we are missing a few things out. The demon-possessed man in the region of the Gerasenes, a Gentile area. Uh, he is, of course, unclean as a demon-possessed man, living in an unclean area, a Gentile area, also in the tombs, which are also unclean. And now we see later on here two other unclean situations. A woman bleeding like that is, in that Jewish context, unclean. And a dead body with the child at the end of the chapter is unclean. So we're seeing Jesus entering into and dealing with things that are seen are supposed to be things that are kept away from holy people, from, from God's people, and indeed are impossible situations to be dealt with. So we're seeing something here about the compassion of Jesus, that he's willing to engage with those others would push away. And we see something about his amazing power in the way that he deals with these situations. And the question I'd like to leave with, with us, I hope, is a thread as we listen to this today and think about it, is what does the compassion of Jesus and the power of Jesus mean for you? What does it mean for how his compassion and power have touched you or could be manifest in your life? And also, how could the compassion and power of Jesus come through you to other people? I think every time we look at a, a passage in the gospel, we have to think about that. What does it mean for you and me? And what does it mean for the way in which we, through what Jesus has done and is doing, what is the way in which he can then bless other people through us? So, Let's be thinking about that as we, we go on through. And a couple of things that we see are a little bit unusual, or at least one of the things particularly unusual, is we're seeing a story here about two women in the passage we're looking at. And of course, in the context of that culture, it was a really unusual thing to see women profiled in this way. And I think that's also something that's very significant for us, that we must understand that the way that Jesus dealt with people was equal, depending on whether they were men or women or whatever culture they were from. He loved everybody, and he treated everybody with equal value. And that's an important message for us in our world today. Two daughters, in fact, a daughter of someone unknown, and then the daughter of Jairus. These are the people we're looking at today. So first of all, let's talk about Jairus and his daughter. Then let's talk about the, the woman who had the bleeding problem for 12 years. And then uh, we have a bit of discussion, and then let's pull out a few threads uh, for what it might mean for you and I today. So Jairus and his daughter. Who is Jairus? Well, he says... It says here that he is a synagogue leader, or the president of a synagogue. And that was rotated. It wasn't a permanent position, but it meant that you were someone prominent in the town. So we're in Capernaum here, uh, almost certainly. And this is a place where he would be known. He would be, if not quite famous, 
Certainly somebody that everybody would recognize and know and respect. He had a respected position. So this is somebody who, in a sense, has a lot to lose by coming to Jesus because Jesus is an unauthorized teacher. He hasn't been trained by uh, official rabbis or, or Pharisees, and he is causing trouble. The Pharisees are against him. They're even accusing him of being in league with the devil, you may remember from last week in chapter four. And so he's taking a big risk to come out like this. Jesus is a controversial figure, but it's funny how desperation changes our perspective. And this is how he is. He's desperate because his little girl is dying. And he falls at the feet of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? This is somebody who would never fall at the feet of anybody. And people wouldn't, I guess, fall at his feet, but uh, it would be much more likely that that would be appropriate in a sense. But he falls at the feet of this controversial figure. And he does exactly what the demoniac does in earlier in chapter 5, where the demoniac falls at the feet of Jesus. So we see that, that attitude of humility that is necessary for transformation. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So she's di- his daughter is dying, and therefore the urgency, and therefore also the tension when there's a delay. I mean, when he, Jesus delays going to see the girl to, take, to have a conversation with the woman, how Jairus must have been feeling so frustrated. If you've ever been stuck behind something when you're urgently trying to get somewhere, you know how frustrating that is. And uh, you know, it was uh, many years ago, most, some of you here will know, uh, our son was very sick uh, when he was about, what was he, Pen 9 or so, I think, about that age. And uh, I was out and Penny rang me. And she said, I'm going to the hospital with Fred. And he'd been trying to lower her t- his temperature. His temperature was, was very, very high. And he was, uh, it, wasn't, you know, it wasn't just a bad uh, cold or something. So she rushed him off to hospital, and I drove straight to the hospital. And as it transpired, he had uh, meningococcal septicemia, so meningitis and septicemia. And uh, it was a, a desperate time in that hospital, which I remember very clearly. It was a long time ago now. But those moments are imprinted on your, on your memory as a parent, of course. And uh, I particularly remember having to physically hold him down so that the surgeons could do a lumbar puncture, uh, which is very painful and you can't give an anesthetic. And he was such a young kid and he was delirious with the fever. He had no idea what was going on and they asked me to stay so that I could hold him down. Um, and when he finally got some treatment, and they, once they knew what the problem was, uh, they said they gave him a 50-50 chance of life. You know, that focuses your mind. And I spent a lot of time in the hospital chapel with friends like Adrian Hill, Archie Kendall, some of us will know, and praying with them. And uh, you know, it was, it was a wonderful thing that he made a full recovery and, and was so grateful. But you know, anything that gets in the way, any delay when something like that is going on, you, you, you push through it and you let nothing stand in your way. And this is the situation that Jairus is in And Jesus even delays. Isn't it odd that he would delay to talk to the woman? Because she is healed. So isn't that the point? And can't he go on and deal with Jairus' daughter? But he delays. We'll talk a bit more about why in a minute, perhaps. So he he tells Jairus, just believe. Uh, That's all you, you need to do. And Jairus trusts Jesus and does go with him. Um, Perhaps not far, because Capernaum wasn't a big town, but perhaps the longest walk of his life walking back to the house where he's later being informed that his daughter is already dead. And to cut to the end of that story, 
Jesus takes her by the hand. He takes her by the little girl by the hand and says to her, Talitha kuum, meaning little girl, I say to you, get up. A lovely, a lovely moment to take her hand. We know Jesus doesn't have to touch anybody to heal because even the woman didn't touch him, just touched his cloak. And other places, he gives the command and people are healed. But that's something going on here which demonstrates that his, his priority was not only healing, but that people would feel his love and compassion. And that's presumably part of the reason uh, he touches her. And of course, the big question of Jesus when the woman touches his cloak is, who touched me? Touch is important. There's personal connection is important. And I think that's a really important thing for some of us who come from perhaps a background of Christian tradition where God is mighty, but very distant. And he is very mighty, but he's not distant. And there might be something for us to wrestle with if we struggle with this, is how can I trust that Jesus really is present and wants to be that close to me, like sitting next to me, walking with me, because that is part of what he wants. He wants that relationship. As for the woman suffering for 12 years with her bleeding, because 12 seems to be significant, we've got 12 years of suffering and the girl is 12 years old, which is rather interesting, not quite sure the significance of that, perhaps if you have a theory it'd be interesting, but because there was no NHS in those days and she'd spent all her money trying to get better, all of it was gone, she was, she was broke. And she comes in desperation to Jesus and she knows she's unclean and yet she pushes through the crowd. I wonder how it felt for her to know that she could be discovered at any moment and ejected. Because if the people around her knew what was going on, they would forcibly take her away. But she pushes her way through the crowd, and maybe she's trying to be careful not to touch anybody. Have you ever tried that in a crowd where you don't want to be touched, and, and you, you just, you're wriggling your way around trying to avoid uh, uh, contact? And perhaps that's what she was doing. I, I suspect so. She was defiled, um, and she defiled anything and anyone she touched. Her illness had left her personally, socially, and spiritually cut off. This is somebody who kind of lived in a personal, permanent lockdown. You may have found a year or a year or so of lockdown difficult. I certainly have. But what about 12 years of lockdown? That was her experience. She's heard about Jesus. It implies that she believes he can heal and wants to heal. So she risks the touch of other people because, because she believes she'll be healed. And she is relieved of her suffering. And the word in the Greek means like a whipping. So it's like her suffering is like she's been, she's been in, a, in a condition of being permanently whipped for 12 years. I mean, intense. It's a very intense situation. She's not only technically and medically healed, but she's been set free from suffering. Not just physically, but from the torment of knowing it was ongoing. Jesus wants to know who it was, and his disciples reasonably say, what are you talking about, who touched you? We're in like a rugby scrum here. How, how can you ask that kind of question? But, uh, and, and she trembles. Uh, she's afraid. And you can imagine because she's going to be found out now. And maybe the people who might recognize her think, did she touch me? Did she touch me? Have I been contaminated? It's perhaps a bit like being on the tube with someone who sneezes next to you these days. And you want have they got COVID? Am I going to catch it? I mean, you know, there's that sort of stepping back kind of fear you could imagine. Uh, she's concerned. Maybe she's also trembling because of the, perhaps a sense of awe, because she knows she's been healed. 12 years I've hoped for this. And I just touch the edge of his 
clothing, and I know I've been healed. I mean, that might make you tremble too. That, wow, what, I, what actually have I been in touch with here? So there's, there's great excitement and awe, I think, and perhaps fear going on with her here. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. So it's not a magic trick. It's not like his clothing, you know, as long as you touch his clothing and it's got some kind of magic Harry Potter stuff going on here. It's, it's not that. It's, it's faith is the operative thing. It's your faith. Must have been an amazing thing to hear that. Your daughter, personal that thing again, your daughter. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace, the shalom of God, and be free um, from, from all of your suffering. So, I want to stop talking for a minute and ask us to talk together, uh, perhaps with the person next to you, about what stands out to you for five minutes. What stands out to you about Jesus here? Think about his calmness. Yeah, big crowd pressing around you, very emotive situations. He's calm, isn't he? He's confident. He is confident. He knows exactly what he can do, and doesn't matter how long he takes, because he does take a long time. He takes longer than Jairus wants but it doesn't dent his own confidence. Great point. Great point. Confidence, yes. Yeah, yeah he's, he's got that, he's got that calmness despite the pressure. It's a bit like, forgive the analogy for those of you not interested, but it's a bit like those footballers. Some seem to have that extra bit of time on the, on the pitch, where time seems to slow down around them. Yeah, they're never panicked. There are certain players like that. Okay, some of you, I'm losing you. All right, so uh, moving on, yes. Yeah, he has a, a presence about him that is there's a self-control there, isn't there? That's impressive. Thank you. Yes. Good. Anything else? Well, what else stands out? Hmm. Everyone. An important person, you could say, Jairus. An unimportant person, the isolated woman. Yeah? Okay. All kinds of people. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. You see, that's an interesting thread with both the stories. Because with the woman, he didn't have to find out who it was. She was healed, and he knew it. And he didn't have to go to the house. So he does more than he has to do because he wants that connection. Yeah. Sorry? Personal. Personal, yeah. 
you mean not his coach or father, but his outside of his world that you have to that's an important point because he was powerful but it wasn't some kind of ego driven power it was power in service to his heavenly father it's a very subtle but, but critical Yes, and we can see the damage that ego-driven power does in our world. And frankly, we can see it in our own lives at times. So, right? so we, need, we need this inspiration of Jesus to be able to handle that challenge. Good. Anything else? Willingness to serve. Compassion. It's not many people that have that power and authority and can use it with such compassion. That's, that's a really divine quality. Right? Good question, because in the story of the demoniac, when he heals him, he says, eh, go tell everybody. So he tells him, go tell everybody, and he tells them, don't tell anybody. All right, let me throw it open. Maybe right. it's because he's in the synagogue. You know, he's back in the synagogue, and 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 he's back in the I think it depends on the situation. I think because of his nature, he is not interested in the fame that comes from what he does. I think he looks at the individual in question and that helps him determine what she, what she do. In this case, a young girl, he might be thinking, this might not be good for her to know that she's been there. Hmm. And now, so maybe she's in consideration for her. She's like, I'm so that this, she doesn't become stigmatized, that kind of thing. So, but maybe in the other occasion where it says, tell everybody, it feels like the individual can handle it and uh, it's also good for him. So, go tell everybody. But in this case, now, just leave it between us. So, I'm thinking. I like that. I like that. That's interesting. Yeah, okay. Any other thoughts, Sarah? I think that's probably the key. I think the other factors are part of it. But I think that, that's the key. So in the, in the where he heals the demon-possessed man is a, is a Gentile-dominated area. It's not a Jewish-dominated area. And so uh, the, the demon-possessed man, having been healed, goes and tells everybody. And it's not going to get in the way of Jesus' ultimate earthly mission. Because Jesus has to get to Jerusalem. He has to get there, and he has to be crucified. He knows that. In, uh, uh, quite a few times in the Gospels, he tells people not to tell other people. Not because he doesn't want good news to spread, but because it might interfere with his mission. It might interfere with his training of the 12. It might interfere with where he needs to go and what he needs to accomplish between that time and the time that he gets to the cross. 
Of course, later, Jesus tells his followers, go and tell everybody. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Or Acts chapter 1, uh, preach the gospel. Uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So it's a timing thing, I think, is what's going on, primarily. All right, so there's a lot here that's interesting about Jesus. Let me pull some threads together, and then uh, let's see where we, we land. I think three of the things that, that strike me in particular about Jesus is, firstly, uh, his power. His power is unlimited, and his power is not compromised by humans' fears. Jesus' power is not compromised by the fear of human beings. There's fear in Jairus. There's fear amongst the people who are wailing, thinking the girl is dead. There's fear in the woman who only dares touch his cloak and then doesn't want to be discovered, of course. But his power is not compromised by human fears. That's helpful to you and me because there are many things that cause us fear. Sometimes even fear of God, but also fear of circumstances and things around us. Perhaps even internal fears of who we think we are, the way that we process the experiences of our lives, our childhood and so on. But whoever, whatever fears you have, do not necessarily prevent God from working powerfully in your life and through you and in this world. The second thing for me is, is his heart, which we've talked about a lot, that personal touch. He, he wants to talk to the woman. He, he touches uh, Jairus' daughter, pick, touches her hand, holds her hand. He wants that closeness. He wants that intimacy. And I would say this perhaps, if you like, Jesus loves people more than he loves his mission. And I'm overstating something there, but to make a point, I think, that because for Jesus to go to the cross was because he loved people, not just because it was the right thing to do. And that's true, and that's really important for us as Christians, that we pray because we want to connect with God, not because we think we should pray. We read God's word because we want to be in touch with God's nature and his heart and his power in our lives. We want to connect rather than just say, well, I need to read my Bible. We actually come to gatherings like this, not just because we look forward to seeing each other, which I think we do and I hope we do, but because we want to, we want to be connected together with God and experience something different together than when we're on our own. But it's, a, it's about that connection with people with God rather than just a duty. I think there's something there. There is. And that's, that's an expression of his, of his extraordinary humility. Right? And I think it's in a, in a mysterious way that we probably can never fully understand in this life. There's a, a blending together of that obedience with love for people. So I wouldn't deny at all that that uh, calling from his father was, was what helped him. Obedience tests love. When you get to the cost of it, yes. So what pushed him through? Well, he loved his father but he also loved us. Right? So there's something there. And his priority. So let me, let me make an attempt to apply some things for us today and see what lands for you. Okay, this, let's see what applies to your own life. Um, I feel like, I'll speak personally for myself, but I think it's a common experience. I feel that this time in my life and this time in our lives, if you like, collectively, not just as a congregation, but as a society, this might be the most, over the last year and a half or so, might be the period where there's been most heightened levels of fear and anxiety in the last 20, 30 years. I can remember times when I was a kid during the 70s and uh, there was the fear of the Cold War. And sometimes there'll be tensions between Russia and America or something and, and you, you'd get a sense of significant anxiety. And perhaps you've been in situations yourself uh, a bit different to mine. But I do think we're quite sensitive at the moment to things that can cause us fear. 
Penny and I were talking about this yesterday when we were driving somewhere. And I, I feel that I am more short-fused about anxiety right now than I was two years ago. Something will happen. And I, I, I feel that, that stab of anxiety much more quickly than I did a year and a half ago. Whether it's a, a personal health thing or whether it's a, somebody, something somebody else is going through or whether I'm worried about a conversation I feel I need to have that might be a bit difficult. I, I feel the, the immediacy of the anxiety is more there for me now than it used to be. And perhaps it's also deeper and more powerful. And I think that's something for us to all reckon with. We can't, we can't just be blasé and say, well, you know, the last year and a half has been difficult, but God is with us, so everything's fine. Of course, God is with us and everything is fine, but it doesn't mean that we feel fine, and it doesn't mean that we can't be human and recognize the challenges. And I say that to say that I think even in marriages and with families, with kids, we need to be a little careful about, careful is not the right word, we need to be aware. It's helpful to be aware of the fact that we might be um, annoying each other a little more than we usually do, or, or our kids, or situations in life at work. We need Jesus to help us with this because he had the poise and the peace in the midst of anxiety and fear-inducing situations that we struggle with. And if he has it, he can give it to you. He can give you that poise. He can give you that patience by the power of his spirit. And that's one of the reasons we need a good relationship with Jesus, because of that challenge. And the other thing that strikes me from this is that despite whatever fears I have or you have, if we step it's a hackneyed phrase, but if we step out in faith, despite our fear, if we step out, then God does extraordinary things. And he does the most extraordinary things, I think historically in the Bible, but also in our own lives, we look back. He does the most extraordinary things, it seems to me, when we are most liable to significant fear. That seems to be the normal Christian life. And I'm particularly reminded of this by a situation, that uh, a thing that happened. So, Yesterday, Penny and I were at a wedding. Uh, those of you who know the Dannett family, Alice Dannett, their daughter, got married yesterday. And it was a phenomenal occasion. I mean, the church was packed to the rafters. Um, it was just full of joy. And it was a great, great, great day. And, you know, I've known her parents, Tim and Chevy, for 37 years. And it's just a wonderful thing to know people that long and see, see this, you know, she, the, the, the wedding. But the thing I'd like to share is that Alice married a chap, a young chap called Alex Clay. And the way this whole thing happened is Alice went to university in Bristol uh, to study veterinary science. And she went there and there were no other disciples from the Thames Valley Church or anybody else at university in Bristol at that point. So she was, in, in that sense, on her own on campus. And her parents said, you need to have a Bible discussion in your room at university. And she's like, well, I, that's a good idea, but I don't want to do it. <laughs> and, and, you know, why don't you want to do it? Because and Alice is a very gregarious person, if you know her. She's super friendly, very good friends to lots of people. She's very good at being a friend. But she they said, why don't you want to do it? Uh, because you'd be good at it and all that. And she said, yeah, but I'm terrified. I'm terrified because I don't know how to lead a Bible discussion. And what if there's all these people with questions or arguments and I don't know what to say? Bearing in mind, she's only 18 years old, I mean, at this point. And I don't know how to do this. I've never done it before. Um, I'm afraid people, I'll invite people and they won't come or they will come and they'll be awkward or I won't know how to get rid of them if I don't want them to stay in my room or my, <laughs> I mean, there's all of these things, right? 
Yeah, it's a good point. And you know, you know, you're an 18 year old woman in a strange city, in a university, getting used to all that. And her parents said, "Get all that, but it'd be really good for you to do this." And she was terrified. I mean, honestly, terrified. Not just a little bit frightened, but actually petrified. I've, I've spoken to her about it. Anyway, in faith, she did do this, and she hosted a Bible discussion. And one of the first people to come along was guess who? Was Alex Clay, her now husband. She invited him. So she invited him and he came along with his then girlfriend. <laughs> Little did she know. Um, uh, anyway, and a, f- a few other people came and Alex came and uh, Alice's parents came to visit and they met Alex and started studying the Bible with Alex and he became a Christian. And several years later, was there in a church, the two of them getting married. Now, not every story ends like that, but some do. Some do. And it was to the glory of God. The day yesterday was to the glory of God. And it just struck me how beautiful the day was and how amazing it all was. And it's like some fairy tale that isn't Disney. It's real life. But the key, the key was that Alice though she was petrified and remained petrified for all three years of her university degree running a Bible discussion, though she was petrified, she stepped out in faith. And then God does the rest, right? And I'd like to ask myself and all of us, is there something that God has put before you where you could, you you have the sense that perhaps it's time to step out in faith. Perhaps you have the sense that you're quite terrified about it, but if you stepped out in faith, what could God do? Is there something like that for you? Something that's been nagging away? Maybe to study the Bible with a friend, reach out to somebody, host something. I, I wouldn't know what it is because only you can know, but God moves in our, in our hearts and minds to reveal things. And I just wonder, is there something where if we stepped out in faith, we would see that Jesus would take care of us? I just want to finish with this thought. Although I think the theme of these two incidents is largely about fear and faith, I think there's something else that I noticed that I really like, which is that I think the core of, if you like, the, uh, the whole passage is verses 34 to 36. When Jesus says to the woman, your faith has healed you, you are uh, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So he reassures her. And then while Jairus is still speaking, or Jesus is still speaking, the next verse, People come from the house of Jairus and they tell him, your daughter is dead. They say, why bother the teacher anymore? And what does Jesus say? Overhearing, which actually in the Greek can mean contradicting. He said what they said. Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He reassures the woman and then he reassures Jairus. And I think there's something in that, that whatever we're fearful about, Jesus is ready to reassure us. And that's why we pray. And that's why we read God's word. And that's why we have fellowship, to, to allow Jesus to reassure us in our fears. Let's be honest with God about our fears. Let's be honest with one another about our fears. And then let's let him reassure us as we step out in faith. God has a lot for us to do in this congregation. All of it depends on us acting in faith whilst still afraid. 